continue on, obviously, in First and Second Peter, a grounded faith. And this morning we're looking at the statement, in this you rejoice. Uh, I know it's very easy to miss what is actually valuable, to miss what is truly worth it. And oftentimes the best illustration is taking vacation with your own kids. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever booked and taken a nice vacation with the family? And that means it's you, your spouse, and the children. Uh, One that included airfare that allowed you to see parts of this country or even the world that you and they have never experienced. Uh, You take fun adventures where you're at. You see the amazing sights. And after you complete that trip, when you get back home, you ask them, what was their favorite part? And I love this answer because I get it. Getting free soda on the plane. (laughs) One, it's not free. You paid for it. But either way, and I look, I'm like, you mean to tell me we spent X to take this trip and do all these wonderful things and all I really needed to do was spend a buck 50 on a Mountain Dew and you would have been happy and fulfilled your vacation dreams. And, And being good parents, we sit them down and we remind them of all the things they've missed and how to see what is really valuable and what was gained and how they have completely underrated what they were able to see and do. We do that as believers. We're on a trip. We're exiles. We're foreigners. We're strangers in the land. And and what do we do? We miss the important blessings and instead focus on the trivial. And it's easy to do because we're caught up in this world. Peter is going to be writing, and, and we're still in his introduction. 1 through 12 is how he's leading into what he's going to be talking about to these churches. And, and he's writing to churches who are walking into and through persecution. They're experiencing hardship and facing a government no longer neutral to the faith. Peter is wanting to impress on these churches that they could and should still live a victorious Christian life under those circumstances. And by doing so, uh, they would actually evangelize proclaim the gospel to their increasingly hostile world. They would be preaching Christ to those that don't know him. And so he began his letter speaking of their great salvation and showing how connected all the persons of the Godhead were to their individual salvation and the unbelievable blessings that they have by being saved. He began that by giving them assurance in Christ and then showing the abundance that was theirs in Christ. Something he showed, by the way, verses 3 through 5, by shouting out praise to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now Peter is, continues encouraging them, and he says to rejoice in that salvation, in that abundance, reminding them, in case they were struggling to see it or had possibly missed it, what was important, what they should be grateful for, showing what they should make the favorite part, of their journey here on earth. Make sure that they're not missing the real blessings as children often do. And as God's children here on earth, we get caught up in what is trivial. We fixate on the Mountain Dew and not on what God has done. So Peter completes his shout of praise and and his description of abundance. And he immediately reminds the churches that salvation is, is the real reason for spiritual joy. And so he says, in this you rejoice. And he's pointing back to the whole theme of his song. 
and I can dive in, but it will bore you to death, all the grammar and why it points to all of the verses there. Uh, but it does. The grammar is, is such that it makes it clear that verses 3 through 5, he's, he's recapping. This is what we rejoice about, prompting them to see and connect with the blessings of salvation, the blessings of knowing Christ. And so Peter is moving from what was a description of salvation to their actual experience of salvation. He does this by expressing to these churches that joy should be and can be our response in light of our eternal salvation, even though we may face situations and circumstances which cause pain and turmoil inside of us, which props us possibly to ask, how is that possible? And I'll talk a little later. Uh, he's not even referring to the pain from the outside. When he talks about the heaviness in those first verses, he's actually talking about how you feel facing the circumstances. And so he's saying you can be joyful and face internal emotional pain and turmoil and struggle and whatever it may be. And so you have to ask, how is that possible? Well, as Peter notes, it is somewhat of an unexplainable paradox. How do you have joy and also feel sorrow? How do you express joy while actually <coughs> expressing sorrow? And it says here, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness. And that word there, and I'll talk about it, in heaviness is not referring to the external pressure, but instead is referring very specifically to how you feel about the, the pressure. So it's not the pain of the punch. It is how you feel emotionally about it. My best friend just punched me. So there's physical pain, but there's emotional pain. And that heaviness deals with the emotional internal response too through manifold temptations, which the way to word that is various trials. The word temptation there is for trial. That's the same word used to the New Testament. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, may be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Peter says to them, be, and that word greatly rejoice is a different word than the typical rejoice used in Scripture. It's only used in Scripture, and I think it's only used here in Scripture, and it means to greatly rejoice. It means to intensively or excessively be joyful over your salvation. That as a Christian, we're called to broadcast joy because we are saved. Now, this is no mere happiness. Happiness comes from positive external events. My team wins the Super Bowl. I am happy. I get a raise. I am happy. No one is looking and I ate 10 cookies. I'm happy. <laughs> of course, they do notice later, but either way... Um, Salvation joy is not from external events going right, but instead from a deeply rooted confidence that one possesses eternal life, a life given to us by the living God through the crucified and risen Christ. This is a deep, spiritually prompted joy. In other words, you're not going to fabricate this. This is not something we pretend. It's something we're supposed to have and express. It is a joy fixed on an eternal perspective and is that perspective that makes sense then of the unexplainable. Rejoice exceedingly, not just a little bit, even though you may face or are facing trials. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 12, 
Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. In other words, be rejoicing, and he links it directly to even if and even because you're facing persecution. The Christian can have joy in the midst of trials. Now, it is important, and, and, and the Holy Spirit inspires his word, and they're, they're there for a reason. That word that you see uh, manifold or various, the word in Greek means multicolored. Multifaceted is what we would typically say about that. What you face and work through is not exactly what I may have to wrestle with, and they don't come along at specific points in life. They may be random feeling, and we'll talk about that. You may look at someone else and say, how in the world are they walking through that? And I have to walk through this. There was um, a gentleman I worked with for a long time, Pastor Tinoco, who was the director of our institute. And he passed away um, from complications of COVID. Four months later, his son passed away from complications of cancer. I look at his wife and I say, now why does she have those trials? And someone else, or I look at myself, have so little trials. And Peter wants to make sure the church understands they're multicolored. There's no rhyme or reason in our mind. It's not like I have to walk through in my 40s this hurdle, and I have to walk through in my 50s this hurdle, and in your 20s you have to walk through this. In other words, they're, they're different. There's different seasons of suffering suffered by different people. There's seasons when we lack, right? Provision, power, position, protection, permanence. We lack. There's seasons of abuse and persecution from the world, whether that is verbal or physical. We deal more in the verbal persecution and you go around the globe and they face physical persecution. And so oftentimes we see seasons of that. We see seasons of pain and grief when we lose loved ones or walk through disease ourselves, or walk through with our loved ones as they walk through a struggle or a hurdle in life. There's seasons of darkness when we fend off the hateful attacks of Satan on body and mind. There are seasons of grief. And it's not like we punch a ticket and say, I've, I've covered that. That hit me with Mrs. Tinoco. Oh, I lost a loved one. And then she lost another one. There's no ticket that you've finished, that you've completed, that you've checkmarked this. But we can have joy in the midst of these various trials. We're called to have joy while grieving. And I mentioned this, and I'll say it again. This heaviness is not talking about the infliction of pain. It's not talking about the specific trial at hand, but instead the inward feeling of distress or grief caused by the outward circumstances. I want you to realize something as a believer, that you're not called to not feel pain that, okay, if I'm going to be a good Christian, then I won't feel distressed. That if I'm a good Christian, then I won't feel this weight on me. No, Peter actually acknowledges the fact that you will feel that weight, that the internal emotion is there, and he doesn't, he doesn't villainize us for that. Actually, it's a part of living. What he tells us, though, is that we will be joyful, not in spite of necessarily, but while that is taking place. See, what is unexplainable is that while we inwardly grieve from the trial, we remain excessively joyful because of our salvation. The two components in the believer exist side by side and shows us all again the greatness and magnitude of our salvation. And I hope 
we can see this point, and that's one of the main things that Peter's trying to drive home. You will feel distressed at times. He's not being a doomsdayer. He's trying to say, no matter what comes your way, and it's different for different people, and we know that if I did a cross-section of everyone seated here, we would find different trials and struggles and different persecution. We have faced different hurdles in our lives. But as a believer, what grounds us, what is foundational to us is our salvation. And it is so amazing and so great that it can allow joy and actually prompts joy, even though we walk through distressing, and that's internal, even emotional distress situations. It tells us to what extent, and I put the word, how long your salvation is a motivating or controlling component in your life. And it's for all of this journey. I put here, but have we all grasped this to this extent? Have you grasped the greatness of your salvation? Have you grasped the fact that your salvation is to impact every day of your life and it impacts every emotion of your life? How do you overcome grief? What, how do we see heaven? How do we keep our eyes fixed on him? And he's given the channel. That's what Peter's trying to tell him. You are to fixate on what he has done. His redemptive work, not in a broad base, but in a very individual way. You are to fixate on his salvation for you. Or, sadly, have we instead viewed salvation as something we've checked off for eternity? All right, I'm saved. Now move on, God. Take me to the promised land. Take me into the riches of your harvest. Give me the fruit I need. And he says, this is the fruit you need. This is it. The abundance we have in Christ, verses three through five, is substantial enough to carry us through the crashing waves of inward grief caused by our trials. Your salvation is not only sufficient, it's beyond what you could need. It is more than enough. But it's important to realize that these trials are not arbitrary acts, right? Because that's what we start feeling like. Well, wow, you got a bad, you, you drew the short straw. Each one accomplishes an eternal purpose. And I put regardless of source. That's what's sad is, is so many believers, and this is a, a, such a wrong way to think. It happened to me recently, sharing how people struggle with certain things and have someone close to me say, well, you know, it must be the same sin patterns. And I'm like, no, it's, it's a struggle. It's a, it's a, no matter what the source is, God's going to work something good. And we, we are so uh, tied to this idea that we're getting whipped at the post because we're sinful, but instead recognizing as we walk through Job how Satan can afflict the believer, yet God is going to work something eternal from that. It's never arbitrary. He has never lost control. And what will happen is these trials, they will result in what is unfakeable. What is seen and proven through these trials is genuine faith. David Helm notes this, trials are the proving ground for our faith. We can know that our trials are not meaningless or random. Instead, they prove and purify our faith, resulting in us, and this is really critical, resulting in us being praised, glorified, and honored by our Lord and Savior. That's what Peter's telling them. You will come out as by fire and your faith will be genuine and God is actually going to give you praise, glory, and honor. It's interesting, the Roman farmer used a simple machine called a tribulum to thresh their grain. One worker would stir up the sheaves while another would drive a crude cart 
over them. Now that cart was not a normal one with wheels, but instead would have cylinders or a flat board loaded with sharp rocks or bits of iron. And though it was primitive, it's still actually used today in certain countries. And this tribulum, by the way, is where we get our word tribulation. Now the purpose of a tribulum wasn't to abuse the sheaves. The purpose of this tribulum was to go over the sheaves and reveal the grain, to make what is there known. And we can know with the certainty that our trials accomplish the exposure of our genuine faith. It brings it to light. And so they're not arbitrary or senseless. In some ways, trials get the cloak and the cover off of faith. (coughs) It makes faith very apparent. It it puts a, a spotlight on faith. And to our Heavenly Father, to our Lord and Savior, the revealing of that genuine faith is priceless. Helm, one of the guys I read, notes this, for him, that faith, our faith, has eternal value. R.C. Sprawl made this comment. He says, our faith is not only valuable to us, and it really is, but also to God who refines it. God values your faith more than he values your gold or your present comfort. This is the thing upon which God puts a premium. And our faith revealed by these trials are what our Lord and God find to be most precious, far beyond purified gold, which has been, the, by the way, the most used currency standard through the annals of history, though now we have wandered from that standard. I was reading about this. I never knew this before. And if I'm wrong, whoever wrote this is wrong. Uh, But apparently The Wizard of Oz is a movie based on a satire written to expose the folly of wandering from a set economic standard, gold, onto more subjective components. Thus, at the end, and I've never watched it from start to finish. I've always seen it in bits and pieces because let's be honest, it was made in the 30s and it's a little boring. But um, in the end, what do you find? A powerless wizard with a bunch of smoke and mirrors. (coughs) The point remains, though, no matter what is at the top value here on earth, no matter what is valued the most, what what is elevated to the top, God places the premium on genuine faith. It's what brings him pleasure. It is priceless to him. And here's what's amazing. It's praiseworthy for us so that we may find ourselves on the anvil of suffering. God is at work testing the genuineness of our faith. The result of that test, the genuine faith, is then pleasing to our Lord and Savior. And he gives us glory and honor because of it, which, again, displays his supreme generosity. He doesn't have to do that, but he does. MacArthur notes this, it is an amazing truth that when Jesus returns for his own, not only will they joyfully serve him, but he also will graciously serve and honor them. And and we need to pause for a second. How amazing that the one deserving of all glory, when scripture says that, it's not lying. Who deserves every ounce of the glory that the world or anyone can offer, any being, anything, God and him alone. Yet, He chooses to give us praise, honor, and glory. And that should blow our mind. It's not change anything about who deserves it all. It's just that he gives that to us as well. 
So how is it possible to have eternal joy while experiencing internal pressure and grief from the situations found and experienced in a sin-filled world? Proven faith is the answer. You see, faith turns sound doctrine into sound practice, which makes Christian joy independent of circumstances, and I mention this, even personal emotions. Can you have joy in your salvation even though you feel the weight of the trial that you're, you're facing? And see, I find comfort in the fact that God doesn't ask me to be numb to that, that I need to pretend like it doesn't affect me or bother me or hurt me, but instead he calls me to be joyful at the same time, that he causes me to shift my focus to see Christ and zero in my attention there, even though I'm going to feel the weight. Yet that rejoicing in the midst of distress, we know ultimately makes sense because of a relationship with our Savior, a relationship which sustains us. And so now Peter highlights their love and belief in Christ and how it brought indescribable joy. Look at verses 8 and 9. Whom having not seen, ye love, <coughs> in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable. And if you highlight in your Bible, highlight that. It'd be unspeakable, or undescribable, or inexpressible are words you may see. Highlight that word because it means exactly what it's saying. Something you can't quite say with words and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And here we see that Jesus is unseen but known. Peter is thought to be comparing his experience. He saw Christ. And yet he's talking to churches who never physically saw Christ, but they've loved and believed on him without having that physical witness. The result is a relationship with a purpose. Their love is used, and I'm sure you've heard a sermon at some point about the different types of love. This is the agape love that's mentioned. I'm sure you've heard about the highest form of love, a love here for us that is possible because it centers on a person. Loving sight unseen only makes sense because of who we love. We can display this type of love because of who we love because it's Christ. And they believed in Jesus, which by the way, the Greek word for in there is actually into Jesus. They believed into, and the idea there is that their faith was placed into Christ and it rests there safely. So it, it involves it, it, more of a connection again, more of a relationship. What is the immediate fruit of that love and faith? Undescribable joy. The word unspeakable or inexpressible meaning that the fullest expression of this joy is beyond words. It is the joy of heaven before heaven, experienced now in fellowship with the unseen Christ. It literally means higher than speech. So ask yourself, does your love for Christ and belief in him result in a joy that would be viewed as undescribable? And, and hit the pause button honestly in your life a second. Because maybe you can describe the joy you feel from your salvation and, and it's supposed to be undescribable. At an interesting note, um, how would we begin to express this inexpressible joy, this beyond words, higher than speech emotion? And one writer noted that possibly it is through music, through songs of praise, worship, and joy, which provide a vehicle of expression that is beyond just words. And we know that, right? The power of music. I mention this because what did Peter just finish doing? 
a shout of praise, three through five. Many people think it was actually three through five was a song that they would sing. And so as you think about that, hopefully it encourages all to sing with undescribable joy so that we hear it in our worship. I'm not singing or saying we sing in tune because I guarantee there's at least one person here who sings out of tune and it's me. I pick my, my notes wherever they fall, right? They're just, they're random. But the sound of believers singing in worship is supposed to, one, encourage all believers and point them heavenward. And the world, if it was listening to those songs, should wonder how great a salvation it must be that it prompts such rejoicing. The result of that love, belief, and joy is something future yet now. We know the ultimate fulfillment of salvation is future when Christ returns. But in the here and now, we also are receiving the end of faith, which is salvation. The result of faith is salvation. That's its ultimate purpose. But they and we are obtaining, and that word obtaining or or receiving speaks of presently receiving the fruit of salvation here as we anticipate the ultimate fruit, which is in heaven and eternity. A a salvation that causes us to to rejoice, again, with an undescribable, beyond words, joy. And I hope you realize this. In 12 verses, Peter is not wandering far from his topic at hand, your salvation. It is a great salvation, and it's in this that you will rejoice. And so it makes sense that Peter's going to wrap up his intro with a look at God's undefinable salvation. He says in 10 through 12, of which salvation the prophets have have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what, and really that word there is who, it is the word tis in Greek, which can mean both uh, context says, searching who or what manner of time the spirit of Christ, which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. MacArthur notes that there is hardly another word as blessed, hopeful, comforting, or assuring as salvation. The message of the Bible is that even though man cannot save himself from the eternal damning consequences of his sin, God can and will rescue from condemnation all those who trust in him and believe his word. Salvation is an amazing word. And as Peter is drawing to a close, he wants us to see what salvation means. So as he speaks to the churches wrestling with discouragement, he highlights that salvation which, by the way, tells you all of God's word has been occupied with telling so that they and we can be strengthened. Uh, You see, salvation is not new, yet newly fulfilled. Peter is saying salvation and Christ's suffering and his glorification are not a novel or new idea. The prophets wrote about it and searched into it, yet they knew that they were serving not themselves, right? They're, They're not serving their time, but they were serving us the time of the church, the age of the church. And so they know that what they wrote about was fully fulfilled in the future, yet they knew about it. One writer notes, of all the truth that prophets received through divine revelation, the truth of salvation was their greatest passion. 
From Moses to Malachi, all of the Old Testament prophets were fascinated by the promises of salvation. That's what Peter is telling us. He says that the prophets were prophesying and then they were literally going back and studying what they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Talk about the power of God's word and trying to get a grip of this idea of a suffering savior, one that will have glories after it, trying to understand the complexities of salvation. This was their greatest passion. And so I I wrote a question. I wonder if salvation is our greatest passion. I wonder if it fascinates us as it should. The prophets were trying to understand God's grace and mercy in Christ, his forgiveness, goodness, unmerited favor that would be lavished on undeserving sinners. They had a picture of the fact that beyond the Jewish nation, that this would be even for undeserving Gentile sinners. That's us. This grace was how they were saved. Salvation has and forever will be by grace. But what they wrote about was far more extensive than they had observed. It wasn't a new way to be saved, but they understood the depth of what they wrote about. They just couldn't quite see to the bottom. And so these prophets studied diligently all the way through John the Baptist, by the way. If you read in Matthew 11, 1 through 3, it records John the Baptist sending his disciples to Jesus and asking a question, are you the one or should we look for someone else? In other words, John the Baptist himself was just digging into prophecy. He is the, he's the one that said, here is the lamb. And then later on is asking the question, are you the one? Because they were still looking in at this perspective all striving to comprehend the greatness and magnitude of God's salvation, a salvation that involved his suffering and then subsequent glories, striving to know who and when. And what we can see is that salvation for them was a priority, even though they didn't have a full perception of it. They were consumed with seeing it all. It was their main focus, even though they knew they would not be able to see it all right then. The Holy Spirit revealed to them that you're not serving yourself, that you were serving us. They didn't know who us was, but they knew they were serving a future generation. And yet they didn't stop looking, believing while searching. They studied long and hard. They were given insight into the Messiah's work that he would first suffer before being glorified. By the way, which was a concept the first century Jewish population completely rejected. Even though the prophets had been writing about it, and I can go through annals of, of different passages. I had a whole bunch of lists and I thought, I don't have enough time. Just read your Old Testament, you're going to see it. So there's my encouragement to read the Old Testament. Um, a concept they would have wrestled with, yet they persisted in studying so they could know who and when, even though they knew from the Holy Spirit, they would never fully comprehend it. You'll never quite get it. Their response was understanding and then study. Why? They realized the importance of what they were writing, but they did not always fully understand when all these things would come to pass, which should make us think how important it is to us. One writer correctly challenges all believers. If the greatness of the salvation yet to come was the intense preoccupying study of all the prophets, then it ought to be just as precious, if not more, to those believers today who have the full revelation. Why does Peter list the prophets wanted to let this church know that this is no new idea, that this is what God has been talking about from the beginning of time, that he's been using his people to proclaim his salvation 
and, and they understood they had prophecies for then and for future, but they understood the whole underlying premise was what God was doing, his redemptive work. And they put all their energy into it, and yet we have full revelation and we check it off like it's something to have done on a list. It's a message that is ultimately preached without doubt. The message the prophets wrote was what was preached. That is the good news. It is the gospel in its fulfillment found in Jesus Christ and the establishment of his church in the power or with the power of the Holy Spirit. He, the Spirit of Christ, divinely inspired his word and divinely proclaimed it through his human messengers. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. And I want you to realize something. Paul was not dumb. Paul was highly educated. He knew everything about man's wisdom. But he says, I don't preach from man's wisdom. How does he preach? But in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This great salvation that prompts such indescribable joy that rests firmly in the work and person of Jesus Christ, the, the salvation that's been the, the story of God's word, the object of the prophet's constant study, proclaimed fully to them and to us, is also, as he closes out, the object of intense curiosity by the angels. As it says there, is an interest without participation. Angels cannot be saved yet they are intently interested in salvation. Why would that be? Because they serve God. And God's story is about redemption. From the foundations of the world, he has thought this. Before we were in existence, before the world was in existence, God was a redeeming God. And so angels who serve him are interested in what God has made the focal point. They're interested deeply in something they don't participate in, because here's the reality. Only man can know the salvation that God provides through Jesus Christ. Holy angels don't need salvation and the fallen ones cannot be redeemed. Yet those holy angels seek to know about salvation so that they can more fully glorify God. They even sing with us of redemption. Go to Revelations 5, 7 through 12. They're singing with the elders of what God has done, of what Christ has accomplished. But here's what's interesting they're watching us to learn more of God's redemptive plan. They stare intently on what God has done, the wonder that he's redeemed us. So the church becomes, in essence, the teacher of the angels regarding salvation. So now we have to ask ourselves, what have the angels learned from us lately? As they look down to understand salvation, and by the way, they're not bored with it, they're still searching. They're still looking to know more. They look on the church and then the question we have to ask every generation, what have they learned from us? See, Peter's saying, surprise, this is how much God cares for you. Ancient prophets, itinerant preachers and exalted angels have for ages stood in service to this salvation that has come to us. This whole paragraph carries a strong flavor of the newness and the excellence of the church age. That's the age in which we live. This is the salvation that we enjoy. Truly, we believers have a great salvation. Peter has laid out this for the churches in Asia Minor and, and for us as well, so that we have a solid doctrinal foundation upon which to anchor our faith. That's what his start was, to ground us 
Because next, he's going to confront the world, the sinful world that is in us and is around us. In us in the sense that we're pulled by our own fleshly desires and around us in what is important to this world. And he says, I want you to see your salvation. I want you to see it in the right way. I want you to see it in the magnitude that it's supposed to be seen. I want you to recognize that the prophets of old studied this and studied this and studied this, that God sent preachers to proclaim this and fulfillment in Christ, and that angels are constantly looking. Why? So that they can glorify God more. And so he says, in this we rejoice. In this we rejoice. Let's pray together. If I thank for this opportunity we have to come study your word, uh, to be reminded of your salvation, to recognize how easy it is for us to lower it or box it or set it aside, to forget that what you've done on the cross, your redemptive plan, your redemptive purpose for us, our salvation is to be constantly in our mind. That it is supposed to be the foundations upon which we express a joy that, that you describe as inexpressible. That while we wrestle with the pain from this world, the pain of sin in general, the pain of loss, the pain of suffering, the pain of Satan's attacks, whatever it may be, yet in the midst of those, we're able to express joy. We're capable of that because we are redeemed. And we're to fix our eyes on what you've done to focus our attention heavenward. It doesn't mean that the pain is going to disappear necessarily, that emotion will be gone or obsolete or neutralized. But instead, as the world looks in, they can see us walking through grief and struggle, through trials maybe that they inflict or just trials in general. And yet they can see a joy that comes from something that these circumstances in this life cannot alter. And that's your salvation secured in you, and then we reap the abundant blessings of that. Fix our hearts and our minds on your great salvation. Help us as believers to zero in on that, not to set it aside as something that we've accomplished, but instead to recognize that that is the story of all of Scripture and to constantly proclaim that to the world around us. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't understand or know what it means to have a relationship with you. We hope that you prick their heart, convict them so they can recognize the great salvation that has been offered through your son's death and then resurrection. Convict our hearts, change how we act in light of what you have done for us. In your precious and holy name, amen.